before we start the show, I want to tell everybody about this amazing event, the Bust Craftacular and School for Creative Living, that's happening this weekend, December 8th and 9th, at the Brooklyn Expo Center in Greenpoint. There will be over 150 vendors of handmade goods, over 50 classes in crafting and new age spirituality, and a bunch of lectures and talks, including our live taping of the Pop-Tarts podcast with special guest Janine Garofalo. Oh my God, I can't wait to meet her. I'm freaking out. You are invited to join us when we interview Janine for free on Saturday at 1 p.m. And for all the info, you can visit bust.com slash craftacular. We would love to see you there. Now, on with the show. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop-Tarts. Bim, 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 I'm Emily Rems. And I'm Callie Watts. We are both editors at Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today, we are interviewing someone so exciting. I can't wait to reveal who it is. Our guest today is known by her fans as AFP, which stands for Amanda fucking Palmer, people. (laughs) I guess that answers whether or not we can use foul language. Oh, yeah. We can, and and (laughs) we certainly will. A singer-songwriter whose dark cabaret stylings have been showcased in the bands Dresden Dolls, Evelyn, Evelyn, and Amanda Palmer in the Grand Theft Orchestra, this creative polymath became a music industry legend when she used Kickstarter to raise $1.2 million to fund her solo project, Theater is Evil. And now her fans have funded her latest solo project on Patreon for even more dough. When it comes to inspiring fan engagement and artistic community, she is in a class all by herself. We're so happy to have her here with us. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. I like your theme song. Because you're the queen of feelings. And he is the king of dreams. By the web of emotion. Saturday morning is mine. So this is like I'm leaving my art cave and going out into the marketplace with my wares. This is for degenerates. Callie will love this movie. Why are you here in our fair city? I, I hear that you're working on some cool shit. Uh, I'm actually here. So I live in upstate New York. Uh-huh. Um, oh, I have a couple so friends that live there. I'm only two hours away at the moment. Um, I'm here because Cindy Lauper invited me All to right, do stop. Whoa. A, <laughs> invited me to do a benefit with her the day after tomorrow. Is that the True Colors one? It's the True Colors LGBTQ youth uh, benefit that she does every year, and she's this is the fourth year she's asked me, and the first time I've been in town. Yay! So that's amazing. Oof. What's it like working with her? I mean, we've never worked worked before. We we've toured together, which wow. I guess you could say is working together. Um, the Dresden Dolls opened up for Cindy Lauper one whole summer in two thousand seven when she did the first True Colors tour, and it was us, Cindy Lauper, Debbie Harry, oh, shit. um, the gossip on some of the dates, this and is Mar- a great Mar- Margaret Show. <laughs> That's so <It> was major. <laughs> an erasure. That is and insane. It was, it was, uh, and it was like a, you know, it was a giant package show. Uh huh. And it was a really, it was a really interesting experience being with all, you know, because it was like a combination of these like legendary bands and then all these young upstarts. And I think Tegan and Sarah might have even been on. I can't remember. But it was like a long, you know, it was just it's like, like a feminist a, super group. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and and it was, uh, and it was fun. I mean, Cindy's got this like infectious. You know, let's do a show. Let's do some things. Let's run around. Like, I relate to her a lot. She's just, you know, she's a runner around her. Let's put on a show type of person. I'm the age where, like, she's just sort of permanently imprinted on my young mind, both because of she's so unusual and because she sang the theme song to the Pee Wee's Playhouse. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, like, really deep in there. Uh, you're widely considered a social media genius, uh, but you began cultivating your fan base before social media even existed. Can you take us back to what your artistic life was like pre-social media and then how you jumped on board and decided to make art really in tandem with the digital world? 
Social media to me is just a new name for what we've been doing forever, which is human beings connecting with other human beings using whatever tools we have at our disposal. Like zine culture and stuff. Zine culture. I mean, what's so interesting, and I didn't really realize it was happening at the time because we were so immersed in it and we were working so hard, but my first band, the Dresden Dolls. Who I adored when I was, I was like, what, 2000? 2000. Yeah, that album was amazing. That was the that shit. Was... And our our band was born right at this turning point in internet culture. Like when we started our band, my drummer wouldn't get an email address because he thought it was dumb and that it was, was never going to matter. <laughs> wouldn't get a cell phone because he thought that it was just a couple of my nerdy friends who had them and why why should he bother? Yeah, I didn't have a cell phone until um, my mom made me get a cell phone after 9-11. But we, <laughs> like, our band and my first solo record sort of spanned that era that went from zines and, like, hanging out at the copy shop and cutting, pasting our own flyers together and making tons of copies of them and going around town on our bikes and putting them up on telephone poles, which is what we did, um, you know, all the way through 2008, at which point I was on Twitter and everything was changing and it never occurred to me to put up a flyer in my neighborhood because I had the internet. Mm. But from the very, very beginning, I blogged and I loved it. I loved that, you know, back in 2000, I had nerdy friends from you MIT. Geocitying? Uh, I used I used MySpace, but I actually didn't blog on MySpace or LiveJournal. That's where a lot of our fans hung out. But I had nerdy friends at MIT who built me an oh. early website that was just, just our you. domain. Because we knew Elliot Eggleston, no word of a lie. And Elliot Eggleston knew how to build websites when no one had websites. So, you know, we designed it together. We hung out together. I remember hanging out at his house and building our website and going like, oh, my God, it's magic. Look, we've got a website. <laughs> uh -huh. and, and I blogged, and we, we had a channel for fan mail, and I answered questions, and I posted hate mail, and we had a forum that was really heavily populated. And I, I have to say, like, watching the Internet turn away from that has has been heartbreaking because our community used to be really tightly bound right. on the fan forum that we called the shadow box and when everyone started migrating over to twitter and facebook and and sort of other social media platforms that trapped you there i think we actually lost you know a core part of our community so i've just watched all of these changes but i think the fundamental thing that's important is i really liked hanging out on the internet i liked talking with our fans. We liked hanging out after shows. We never did it because we had to or some label was telling us, you know, you really ought to get on social media and promote your record. Yeah. We just went there naturally or I went there naturally because I loved connecting with people and I started a band and wanted to make theater and wanted to make art because I liked hanging out with people. And, you know, the internet just made it easier. Yeah. Well, I think that really speaks to why when you were able to crowdfund an album slash musical project there was all this press about how like Amanda Palmer has discovered how to monetize music again but I think that trying to apply that to just the music industry in general is whack because not every musical act has been pouring their hearts out on the internet since websites were invented like there is you can't just crowdfund any musical project you want without cultivating first the kind of really intensely emotionally invested fan base that you have. And so I, I wonder what you think of being a business model when what you have done and continue to do is so extraordinary. Well, to speak a language that I think you guys can understand, it's a lot like running a magazine mm -hmm. or a public radio station or whatever. I mean, people sort of, people probably pick up Bust Magazine and they look at it and they think it's just this product and it's for sale and this is what it costs. They might not think about the human beings who fundamentally support it so that it exists and the human beings who've been reading it and are actual fans of it. They don't look at that magazine and think about a community. Mm -hmm. They look at that magazine and they think of a product because they're yeah. in a drugstore and they're seeing it on a shelf. 
uh, even though that's probably not even happening anymore. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that I felt like I had to explain until I was blue in the face the, the year I did Kickstarter was, you know, Kickstarter was really just a tool. It was just a platform. It, it wasn't like all of a sudden I had tapped into some magical slot machine and pulled the magical button and millions of dollars appeared from the sky. It was just a really helpful tool for harnessing the goodwill and the like gameness that my fans had to pre-order an, an album five months out. You know, it was basically just a, it was a really handy tool for a community that already existed. Yeah. And I still, like, even today, I, someone tweeted at me, you know, I was hailing, uh, you know, I was talking about Patreon and talking about how great it is to see all of these female artists using Patreon. And I still, I saw so much of this in 2012, but I still get tweets like the one I got this morning where someone said, why are you using Patreon? You're rich. <laughs> and I was just Man. like, should we even bother to unpack this? And I said, that's like asking, why are you using a credit card or a bank? You're rich. Yeah. It's a tool. Right. Would you mind taking a moment just to explain to our listeners who aren't familiar what Patreon is and how it's different from Kickstarter? It's basically like a committed Kickstarter. It's a subscription to an artist. So Kickstarter is still great for one big one-time project that you need to fund, and then that's it, everyone disperse. Patreon is really great for artists who are creating constant content and just need a sustainable, draw uponable, you know, pile of capital to work from. So I find myself explaining Patreon as more like NPR you know uh -huh. you're right. giving me three dollars a month so that I can just make my shit put it out make it as freely available as possible you don't have to tune into every single song every single video every single broadcast but you want it to be there and what I actually found with Kickstarter is that a lot of people supporting me you know yes they wanted the record they wanted the vinyl they wanted the poster but mostly they just wanted to help me out Mm -hmm. They just wanted me to be happy and not struggling and making my art with a giant safety net so that I didn't have to do all sorts of like shitty bells and whistles marketing, you know, and then I could just write songs, record them and put them out, which is every artist's dream to yeah. just be able to do that without drama. And I've now been on Patreon for three years and it's it's totally changed my life. It's changed the way I make music. It's changed the way I write music. It's changed the way I release things. It's changed the way I think about what music needs to be because there's just no rules. There's like this boundaryless palette that I have to play with. And my fans are all just there going, yep, sounds great. Keep doing your thing. Here's $3. <laughs> Did Patreon help fund your new video, Mr. Weinstein? We'll see you now. It was totally funded by Patreon. Because that's such, I, I mean, if anything is a, a testament to the good that can be done with that kind of platform. That video uh, came out at the, the one-year anniversary of the Weinstein explosion. It also came out sort of, well, I, and I guess, you, and I'm sure you can say the rest of the nation and world was reeling from the Kavanaugh hearings oh. and how we were all just totally eviscerated by it. It was a crazy week. It. And uh, yeah. you and Jasmine Power wrote this amazing song called Mr. Weinstein Will See You Now um, about uh, workplace rape and sexual abuse. And then the video, if any of you guys haven't seen it, um, just hop on the internet right now and you can see it. It, it uh, is this very steadily building very cinematic experience where there's a hotel room slowly filling up with women who very clearly don't want to be there. Shut your eyes, pay no attention, just keep calm and carry on. Black or blue, you choose your... And they just explode out of it in a way that I will let you experience for yourself. But there's something very cathartic about watching it. There's also something mildly traumatic about watching it. I'm so interested to hear about um, how you conceptualize the video and the feedback that you've gotten from it. And just generally like making art out of this intense moment of grief and anger that we're experiencing as women right now. I have totally changed course 
since Trump got elected. Not as a deliberate decision. It's not like it happened mm. and I sat down and like rubbed my hands and went, okay, it's time to be a political artist. But the, you know, I've always just felt like a, you know, like a conduit and a channel for whatever's going on around me. Mm -hmm. And this has just been stuff that I cannot get out of my head and I cannot escape. And it, it's been so interesting because the album that I'm putting out this spring is like the most bizarre combination of the the most like graphic, deeply personal stuff I've gone through, you know, in the past six years, two abortions, a miscarriage, a birth, the death of my best friend from cancer. Like it is a hyper personal record. Um, it's called There Will Be No Intermission. Mm, and uh, at the same time, you know, the songs on it, there's a song there's a there's a really beautiful song about abortion that I feel like took me my entire adulthood to figure out how to write. And there's a song called Drowning in the Sound that's just sort of about living in this Trump era and feeling so disconnected from everyone as we sit there furiously clicking and tapping on our computers trying to affect change and just feeling so fucking hopeless. Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting combination of things it's like the most personal has become the most political because it feels like that's what's happening right now it feels like the most potent political thing a woman can do right now is just stand up and nakedly tell the truth mm -hmm. about her experiences mm -hmm. like really shamelessly and that is so obviously setting other women on fire all over the globe that like that's our political tool. Our political tool is just the truth yeah. of our experiences. Mm -hmm. And so watching what happened with Weinstein and watching what happened with the Me Too movement and the physics of it, like this woman saying this and then this happening and then this happening and then this happening. We wanted, when I talked to Noemi LaFrance, the choreographer of the video, I was like, we have to show that. This isn't this isn't like a sob story about what it feels like to be raped. This should be a video about what happens when one woman turns into two women, turns into three women, and then there is a flood that we are all feeling right now, mm -hmm. that there is the change and it's happening. Um, but it's, it's predicated on this agreement that we have that we can't bullshit each other and that we can't compete with each other and that we have to tell the truth to each other about our experiences, about our lives, about what it's really like to each other as women, to men, to the media, whatever. And so it's it, it sort of all feels like it's coming together right now in this in this record that I'm putting out, but also you know, being able to, to circle back to what you were saying about Patreon, it can be frustrating because it can feel so dorky and 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 too business like <laughs> to talk about Patreon and how the Patreon paid for that video. Uh -huh. But if I hadn't had that money, if I hadn't had twelve thousand people giving me little bits of money, there's just no fucking way that video would exist. There's no magazine. There's no cultural grant. There's no label. That's just like, we've got a great idea. Let's just give you 40 grand to make a video that you came up with in your head that will make no money on the <laughs> internet ever. <laughs> and it's important to point that stuff out because history doesn't happen in a technological vacuum. Magazines understand this. Radio understands this. Artists understand this. Like, you can avoid talking about the money and technology all you want, but if a story wants to exist and get delivered in a package like that, the money has to come from somewhere. Yeah. And so, you know, I feel like I've just had this quiet little revolution brewing on my Patreon of people who are just sliding me $5 bills saying like, go do it, make the balls out uncensored feminist art because we just want it to exist in the world. I wonder how, if there is a gendered component to just the idea of being a woman asking for what she needs. There's a certain way that many women are socialized to not need things, not ask for things, not be like, I'm an artist, the work I make is worth something, will you give me money to make my art? Like that is something that I feel like men generally are socialized 
to do much more than women are. Have you encountered that? Oh, no, never. (laughs) (laughs) I fucking spent all of 2012 and 13 getting pilloried on the internet for being a woman asking for what she needed. And I mean, even even listening to the way you put it, it's not even... uh, it's not even a matter of standing there and saying, I'm a woman, I'm an artist, my art is worth something, you should pay for me. It, it's more like, I'm a woman, I'm an artist. If you think my art is worth anything to you, why not pay me? Yeah. And, you know, to me, there's nothing less demanding than crowdfunding. It's really just an invitation to help. Yeah. And, you know, with no strings attached with no you know there's like there's there's just no downside to it which was what was so perplexing to me when I used Kickstarter and got yelled at and you know asked my fans to volunteer at shows and got yelled at and I mean it was part of why I took a few years off in my career and was like first of all I you know, I didn't understand how totally bizarre this philosophy was to everybody else. That, <laughs> yeah. Like you could just ask anyone for anything and as consensual adults, they can say yes and you can say yes. Mm-hmm. And then you go on mm-hmm. your merry way. And but I was also like, I think this has got to be about more than me and this. I really want to explore this, which is why I did a TED Talk, which is now almost had 10 million views <laughs> and wrote a book about it. Mm-hmm. And I it was definitely about more, just more than me and people's opinions of me. It was definitely about more than just being a woman. I think it was it was about some fundamental fear and shame that we have culturally around art, around asking, around exchange. And, you know, if you want to boil it all down to something, like capitalism has really fucked us. It has it has forced us to think about the world in this like buy sell product driven bizarro way that doesn't actually emotionally make sense when you strip it all away. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that people were really unsettled by when I just went out and said, what if we all just like traded what we needed? What if yeah. we all just went out right. and like asked each other as consensual adults to like do this and do this? And it was like, you're fucking our system. And it's like, well, <laughs> uh-huh. I can do this within your system, but but clearly I've hit a nerve because I'm not just sticking my record on the shelf and saying it's $19, buy it or don't. More, I was more doing what women are really good at doing, which is saying, hey, come and be in a relationship with me. Yes. Let's have an exchange with each other. Let's make it feel real. I like the way that you express trading what you need because there's this idea with Patreon that you know people are your patrons and you're asking them for what you need and they're just giving it to you. But I believe that the reason that it works is that you're really providing something that people really desperately need in the form of rigorous honesty in a variety of artistic forms. Um, you mentioned that you, this album that you're working on is intensely personal. You mentioned abortion. I listened to an interview with you that I was just staggered by recently where you were talking about your history with abortion and with miscarriage. You mentioned having- Was it an, the one with Roisin Engel? No, it was the Strange Women Oh, interview yeah. where you you talked about having one abortion at 17 because you were 17 and one uh, after taking antibiotics because you didn't know you were pregnant and it's it was a baby killer. Mm. And then another one because you just found yourself accidentally pregnant and you weren't ready and that there were different abortions at different times of your life for different reasons and that people don't really when they're talking about the abortion debate talk about the different reasons why and that every reason is why and is okay and every reason is valid and every reason is why we need to keep it safe and legal and those you know uh, in the like back and forth in all the states like well what about incest and what about rape and like we really just need to like totally any reason because that is is the reason yeah i was just i was talking to laurie penny about that, we were both in Ireland when the referendum happened. Uh And this is one of the things that we tried to stress, which is, you know, the more we discuss cases of rape and cases of incest, 
and cases of, you know, this fetus. Extremity. Is, extremity. This fetus is totally deformed. The it, it almost feels like the the more dangerous and shameful we're making it for women right. who are just like, I'm not ready to have a baby. Yeah, you don't really need to have a or uh, give a reason. If you just don't want to have a baby, then that's the reason. And yeah. we don't have artists out there like you who are willing to like put their lives into their art and into their discussions to that degree. I wonder though, when I heard you say that, at f at f when I heard you give that interview that I was referring to, my first response was, fuck yeah, go there, help, help the women of the world feel less alone. And then my second, and maybe this is just like, a Jewish impulse was like <laughs> someone's going to oppress her. Someone's going to silence her. There, like danger, danger, danger. Like, has there been well danger as as a result of you being so radically honest? I think one of the things that I really like about getting older is, first of all, and I think very unfairly, I'm given, uh, I'm just given more respect. And I'm given a wider berth to speak about my experiences because instead of being 26, I'm 42. Mm -hmm. um, but also, I've, you know, I've spent my whole life getting criticized for being an oversharing, narcissistic, egotistical, attention-getting, fill-in-the-blank woman. Mm. But also, you know. I've had to learn how to navigate the path of what it means to be the human being who openly talks about these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Every single woman has a family, has relationship, has friends, has a context. And I have had to shuffle around and Tetris the context of my life and all of my relationships, including my relationship with my mother, my relationship with my exes, my relationship with my husband, you know, pretty soon it will be my relationship with my son in, in a way that accommodates my ability to tell the truth about what's happening. And first of all, I don't take it for granted that I've had a lot of privilege and freedom in that department. You know, I don't have the kind of family that's just going to disown me mm -hmm. if I utter certain words. Mm -hmm. right. um, but I also selected for a lot of this. I picked a husband who could deal with this. Yeah. I left other relationships that couldn't. So I've also created an atmosphere and a landscape around me in my life where I know that if I tell the truth, I'm not going to have to watch my back and I'm mm -hmm. not going to have to constantly be looking over my shoulder. And also, I've learned how to get better at telling the truth. Uh -huh. You know, in my mid-20s, I was one of those just like raw, raw, radical honesty, fuck everyone. And radical honesty is often not compassionate. You know, mm. radical honesty, while it can feel really good and it can feel really liberating and it can feel like you're punching up, can also accidentally knock down the people next to you who don't have a platform and don't have a voice. So I learned a lot of that the hard way, by trial and error, by hurting people, by accidentally outing people emotionally and not wanting to, by mm -hmm. upsetting people. And sometimes it's great to upset people and sometimes upsetting people just happens by accident. Um, but you know, it's almost like this is its own practice. It's like I have actually had to learn as one of the skills right along with like mic technique, how to tour, how to make a record, how to do piano overdubs. Like I've had to learn how to be honest mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. being an asshole. You are in a creative power couple with writer Neil Gaiman. And I always just kind of wonder when there's two intensely creative people in a relationship, do you guys have to like put on the schedule who gets to be the diva that day? <laughs> yes. Like, who, like how, do, how do you negotiate big creative personalities within a couple and within a, a small family? We have a diva app. And we, just, we, we, check it, we check it every morning. <laughs> Saturday um, morning is mine. I joke about that, but it's very true. Um, outside the domestic sphere, when when I'm in Neil world, like I'm at an event that Neil is doing, or I'm at a book signing, or I'm at one of Neil's events, or you know what have you, that's one thing. And when Neil is in my world, it's another. And whoever's running the show gets to play the diva card. Yeah. 
And it's one of the nice things about being in a relationship with him because there's just no anger about it. I, you know, if I look at him and it's a book signing and he's totally unavailable to me, my ego is not crushed. I really get it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it's the same thing if he comes to a Dresden Dolls show and I'm just like, get the fuck out of my dressing room and don't take my hummus. (laughs) Like, go away. Don't take my hummus. (laughs) He gets it. Now being parents together is like, it's like yet another wheel on a very toppling bus. Like, we've just had to figure out how to trade off who's working, who gets to play the diva card, who's the main parent right now, how do we split up these tasks, mm-hmm. who gets to decide, who gets the final word. And it's it's like any other relationship. It's just this constant bungling dance of trying to get it mostly right and then being very, very forgiving when we you know, wind up punching each other in the face. There's a lot of talk recently about emotional labor, both in and out of the home. <laughs> and like, you're both famouses. You're, you both have big careers and big plans and lots going on, and you're both parents. And from what I understand, you're both feminists. Um, how does that chore wheel shake out <laughs> oh God. in the emotional labor department? Um, when things, if you believe yeah. the hype, just tend to get dumped on the woman more than the man. Um, I love that you've asked me this question because no one ever asks me that. It's a, <laughs> and it's a very specific question. It's a really good relationship question. I mean, when I got when I first got together with Neil, my my friend Casey Long, I was going on a walk with her in Boston, and she she was guffawing at the fact that I was dating Neil Gaiman. And I said, why? And she said, because you're the queen of feelings. (laughs) And he is the king of dreams. And (laughs) it's like... (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it it has been difficult. Yeah. Um, But I also think you always have to meet people where they are. I feel like I've, I've been able to draw Neil out of dream world a, a lot more than he bargained for. <laughs> mm. But I also think subconsciously, he didn't pick me by accident. You know, I didn't I didn't show him some side of myself that you guys aren't seeing to lure him into my spider web of emotional, <laughs> you know. Spider web of emotion. Uh, <laughs> he picked, you know, he picked me as a partner. I picked him. We knew what we were getting. I knew that I was getting a guy who was, you know, not keen on sitting around all day and talking about his emotions. And he knew he was getting like, I'm going to get on stage naked and talk to you about my abortion lady. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's who we were 10 years ago. Uh-huh. And um, and we, you know, we've really tried to respect and appreciate the the talents and the lacks that each of us have. Neil is really good at other kinds of adulting that I'm not great at. Um, and he's really good at running certain aspects of the household. Um, you know, and I, I am the one who sends him texts saying like, X has emotionally happened to person Y. You need to Z. And he ah. goes, I'm going to listen to my wife. What a wise idea. <laughs> I'm going to send flowers and a kind note. And I go, good, you're learning. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that I drive him crazy in equal measure in other departments because he speaks entire languages that I do not speak. For instance, I don't speak nerd or comic. (laughs) He gets really sad about that and feels really lonely because he can't, you know, it's not, I don't want to say that it's not that he can't impress me, but he can't share those aspects of his life with me. You know, the day I met Neil, I also met Stan Lee Mm -hmm. because Neil pointed him out across the dressing room and said, that's Stan Lee. (laughs) And I said, who's Stan Lee? Stan Lee who? (laughs) That's Stan Lee. And I said, I don't know what that means. (laughs) And he was just like, you should have just seen his face. He was like, you're a human being. How could you not know who Stan Lee is? But I didn't grow up with comics. I didn't grow up reading fantasy and sci-fi. Like, I came out of a different world. And so we, you know, we try to just take joy in the ability that we have to educate one another about what we didn't come equipped with. It's like when Camilla didn't know who Joni Mitchell was the other day. I was like, 
<laughs> That's a shock. Let's talk about your feminism. I always ask our guests if they're feminists. I don't have to ask you that because I am a follower Shocker. of your work. What if she was like, no. Nah. <laughs> I'm a humanist. I don't like the Breaking word news. feminist. <laughs> I'm a humanist. Me. Yeah, I just think people should all be good to one another. But <laughs> calling it feminist is like, I'm not one of those. <laughs> those people are weird. Be that as it may, your feminism. Uh, how has it evolved over time from being a single and ready to mingle art maker to becoming to being married to being a mother to becoming in your forties? How has your feminism evolved? Well, I actually think uh, that that joke that I just made. Yes, it's like it's it's uh, it's painful for me to admit, but I think it's important for me to admit. Um, I didn't call myself a feminist in my 20s. Picking the jaw from the floor. <laughs> well, for the same reason that I think a lot of women didn't. And I mean, sometimes I look at it and I look at the early days of the Dresden Dolls and when journalists would say, so are you a feminist? And I would go, uh, I guess technically yes, but I don't want you to pigeonhole me. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be stuck in that box with those women. Um, you know, the same way that I would, I would insist that journalists not call us goth. Mm. And it, yeah. it didn't so much have to do with what I was because I was a goth. I grew up, that music raised me. I grew up listening to The Cure and Bauhaus and Nick Cave and that was my diet. Um, and I grew up a feminist. You know, I stopped shaving when I was 16. I, like, I believed desperately in all the tenets of feminism. But I also saw how society mm -hmm. talked about feminists. And I didn't want people to talk about me like that. And I also saw how goths kind of got like boxed up and marginalized and given their own glass ceiling. Like I remember all of the early rejection letters I got from record labels were like, oh, your band seems great. Your music is great, but we don't work with goth bands. Mm. And I was just like, well, fuck you. You know, if I get to define myself, I'm going to define myself so that if I look up, I don't see a ceiling at all. And feminist looked like this trap mm -hmm. that I would get stuck in. And all of a sudden I would be Amanda Palmer, the feminist goth songwriter. But I think and it also was in general much more uh, of a box than it is now. If you're not calling yourself a feminist now and you're a woman, then... Yeah, and I've been... You're in your own other box. And I've been so happy to see that happen. And I mean, even just in the last two years, like, it's almost like this weight has been taken off my shoulder because instead of feeling like I'm constantly trying to convince people or constantly just, like, punching through a certain wall, it's almost like the wall's coming down now and everyone gets it. Mm-hmm. And I think you also see that reflected in my artwork. I feel like uh, a kind of a, not a justification, but I just feel a kind of a relief that, you know, my point of view, my politics, my desire to tell the truth about my female experiences, which I've been doing since day one of the Dresden Dolls, is now par for the course and not, oh, she's a provocateur, oh, she's an eccentric weirdo oversharer. It's like, no, she's just a woman artist. Yeah. And I get to shake off all of those old qualifiers and just do my fucking thing without being as bothered. Yes. <laughs> and that's really a relief. Excellent answer. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm going to chew on that for a while. Talk to me about your hopes and dreams and plans for 2019. So this album, um, there will be no intermission. Um, when is this going to air? Tomorrow. Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, well, you, uh, your listeners are going to get a surprise because I already spilled the title. The title's not uh, actually getting publicly announced until the 11th, but whatever. I'll let it leak. <laughs> Exclusive. Exclusive. It is a good title. Uh, thank you. Um, I am just about this week. I am rolling out this record. You're going to be able to pre-order it on vinyl, CD. I wrote 10 or 15,000 words in this art book. All of this stuff is sort of rolling out and going on sale. And I'm about to put the first leg of my global tour on sale. And it starts in the U.S. and Canada in March. I tour all the way through June. I'm taking a family summer off with 
Neil and my son Ash, and then it's I'm adulting. Tour- I'm adulting for two <laughs> months and calming down. And then uh, in September of next year, I'm going to go tour the UK, Europe, Australia, New Zealand. And I'm basically, for the first time since 2012, going back on the road with a big record. I've been off, you know, on Patreon doing little side projects and little side albums, but this is like the big one. And it's also my first legit solo tour where it's literally just me on stage, no band, no collaborators, no other musicians. It's me and a piano and the truth. I'm actually, one of the reasons that I'm in New York right now is I'm working on the show, on the script for the show, with um, this wonderful, wonderful man named Oscar Eustace, who is the artistic director of the Public Theater. Fancy. And I'm going to leave this studio and go over to the Public Theater and sit down in a room with just him and a piano. I'm going to play him my entire show. Wow. And he's going to give me some feedback, and I'll um, I'll be playing in New York on April 20th. I can't say the venue yet. because it 420? On 420. Mm. Uh, it doesn't a get announced But uh, it's just like, this is the giant moment. And I haven't had one of these giant moments basically since my last Kickstarter. So I'm like rolling into mad yeah, it's times. popping off. So this is like, I'm leaving my art cave and going out into the marketplace with my wares, you know, armed armed with a brand new record for the first time in six years. Congratulations. Wow. That's no small feat. This Thank is going to be a year for you, man. And it's the saddest record in the world. <laughs> I'm excited That was the working sadness. title. The, the first working title was the, the saddest record in the world. And then there was this joke period of a couple weeks where I was calling it Five Hanky Record. Aww. <laughs> it's certainly the time for it. I've never been more ripe for the saddest <laughs> yes. record in the world. It's so sad. Literally every song on the record makes me cry when I play it live. It's going to be brutal. Oh, man. <laughs> Bring it on. We like to ask all of our guests, what you watching? And when I ask you what you watching, it's a very broad question. We mean books, movies, television, uh, podcasts, albums, writing on the bathroom wall. If it's pop cultural <laughs> and you're consuming it, we want to know about it. So I'm mostly a book reader. Um, mm. I'm not so much a television watcher or a movie watcher. And I'm reading, t- I, I'm kind of a book slut, so I tend to read four <laughs> books at once. The two books that I'm in the middle of right now are perfect for you guys. One is one is called One Perfect Day. It's by Rebecca Mead. And she, she was a New Yorker writer, and I think she's a Brit. And it is an incredible, scathing book about the wedding industry. Oh, it's so (laughs) good. And it just like, it reads like a crime novel. It's just like, it's a page turner. And she sort of goes in undercover. Like she goes in undercover to Disney World and sees how the Disney weddings happen. She goes to all of these giant bridal conferences with these like insanely Mr. Burnsy money grubbing men being like, you must get this the bottom line, fourth quarter, screw these brides. (laughs) It's it's so good. It's such a crazy. I wrote an article about how to um, like low budget weddings for Mm -hmm. busts, like a you know like an indie brides kind of thing. And the number one thing I took away from was don't ever tell anybody it's for a wedding. If you're getting a cake, don't say it's a wedding cake. You're getting a ring. The same same ring. If you say it's a wedding ring, is hundreds more dollars, thousands yeah. more dollars than the ring would normally it be. It is a fucking racket. A half. venue, you could go to a bar and say, oh, I'm going to have a party. Okay, cool. Yeah. You go there and say it's a wedding, whole big other shit deal. It's a hand fasting. <laughs> um, and the other book I'm reading is called Drinking a Love Story by Caroline Knapp. And I actually came to this book through reading Leslie Jameson's, like, insanely beautiful memoir The Recovering because I saw her reading bits of it at Joe's Pub six months ago and I was like oh my god you're amazing bought her book and she talks about this book in her book a lot and Caroline Knapp was actually a writer for this paper The Boston Phoenix that the Dresden Dolls were in I remember her writing I you know I don't think I ever met her but I remember her byline and I remember she was one of the Boston Phoenix writers and so I just went and got the book and started reading it. It's a beautiful memoir. It, I think it came out in the 90s. It was a New York yeah. Times bestseller. Mm-hmm. It is an unflinching memoir. It's the kind of memoir I love reading where I'm like, oh, my God, you are just, like, really testing the limits of honesty here. It's so amazing. 
And I went to look her up on Twitter because I was like, of course, she's on Twitter. She's an amazing writer. She, I wonder what she's published since then. And I had this one-two punch because, first of all, I picked up the book and I didn't know that she was from my old hood. She was from Cambridge. And I was like, oh, I recognize all these places. This is where I used to street perform. We were drinking in the same bars, but 10 years apart. Uh, and then the internet told me that she was dead. Oh. She died of cancer when she was 42, my age. Yeah. And it was, it was such a strange emotional thing to go through because there I was reading the book going like, oh, this person's probably going to be my friend on Twitter. I can't wait to tell her that I'm loving her book and that her memoir is really speaking to me. And I can't wait to have you know, tea with her and Leslie Jameson in New York. And then to find that out, it was, it was an experience I don't think I've ever had before mm. where I was reading a book of an, a contemporary only to find out that they weren't my contemporary anymore. It was, it was really devastating. So I'm now like, I was halfway through the book and now I'm reading the second half of the book and this, with this whole other yeah. filter. That'll be the encore for your saddest show in the world. <laughs> uh, anyway, both incredible books. And that's what I'm. That's what I am watching with my eyes and brain right now. <laughs> Thank you so much you. Uh, for coming and for talking with us. We're such big fans and admirers of yours, and we can't wait to see you take over the world next year. Ah, well, the record. <laughs> the record's out in March. Um, it's coming out on International Women's Day. Nice. Um, along with a beautiful video that I'm really looking forward to that is that deals with abortion. So I will definitely tap you guys to yeah share it. If anyone wants to know about the tour dates or whatever, the Patreon, the album, if you just go to amandapalmer.net, in a couple of days, everything will be splashed across the front page. Exciting. Perfect. We're going to take a little break. And when I get back, I'm going to ask Callie, and she's going to ask me, what, what you watching? watching? Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes. And tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. And we're back. And now I want to know. I want to gaze into the limpid pools of I your eyes. I know what you want to know. I want to know, Callie. What you watching? What am I watching? Let's see. Um, I went to this insane art show for Zardulu uh, that was at the Transfer Gallery, which is a women-owned gallery, and they, I think for the past couple years, have only shown women's works. But Zardulu is an artist that's behind a bunch of video hoax, like the mouse or the rat that eats the pizza. Uh-huh. Um, there was like a raccoon riding on a alligator's back. Um, there, were, there were a couple other ones that people are like, oh, this is crazy, but it's just her setting it up. There was a lot of like taxidermy, recreating the art that she'd done. And then she did a ritual where she uh, killed herself and her body was split up. I missed that because I was at my friend Justin Wood's gallery that was right down the, he has a but show. But she didn't actually for realsies kill herself. Well, she's off social media and she spread her body parts around the, the city. If you're off social media, you may as well you not might even as well be, be alive. So... There was a book that you bought that was like in a bunch of, uh, it's like, look like sort of weird tarot cards. And you're supposed to use that as clues to find her body. And then each body part has $1,000 attached to it. Dang. I have the book. It's really hard to decipher shit. And I haven't read any news about it. So maybe that is also a hoax. Mm. Either way, Zardulu is amazing. The show was great. I love that you're a gallery hopper. It's both weird and classy. <laughs> I stay weird and classy. Speaking of weird and classy, I just got sucked into a show called Bonkers Closets. Um, Bonkers Closets? It's a Facebook show. Somehow I got sucked into it, and it is insane. There's like this socialite from Singapore that has a closet that you have to get 
finger scanned to get into. Mm. There's the lady that was from the Queen of Versailles. Versailles? What is that oh, show? Oh, Versailles. Yeah, the, the documentary Queen of Versailles. Yeah, that lady. Today on Bonkers Closets, we go inside the closet of the Queen of Versailles herself, Jackie Siegel. She has a champagne doorbell in her closet. So you ring the bell and then champagne gets delivered to you? Right. And so I'm thinking I'm going to install one of those in my bedroom and then Camilo can bring me some Andre when I get dressed. <laughs> I want one of those for Diet Coke. Also, But I heard that our gross president has one. For, for Diet Coke? I think it, it was at one point it was the Coke and then it went to Diet Coke or vice versa. But yeah. Well, mine will be champagne, Andre. But I live in New York, so I don't have a closet. So right. the doorbell would be in my bedroom. The doorbell would be at your front door where a doorbell would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'd still put it in the bedroom because that's where my clothes are. And that's where you lounge. And also, uh, that lady had a bed in her closet. And if that still constitutes a closet, then I think my bed in my room with the dress rack constitutes a closet. And I'm going to try to get on Bunker's closets. Then there was this other dude called... Okay, this guy is crazy. His name is Sir Ivan. Okay. And he has a closet of capes and all that. He he also goes by Peace Man. And he, <laughs> he, he lives upstate and throws really crazy parties. And he's really into really bad techno music. And has all his capes have rhinestone peace signs on them. And then he has a whole other closet for his dog who has matching capes. Cute. And Christian was, came over one night. We were supposed to be chilling. Also, somehow he was able, he, his phone was dead, and I heard him yelling up to my room while I was watching Bonkers Closets, and I was like, what is that? It was Christian outside on the street. And so then I made Christian watch Bonkers Closets with me, and he was like, I know that guy. I he know knows him, Sir, the cape I, guy personally? Yeah, but he didn't know like how bonkers he was or his Bonkers Closet. He just like, internet friends with him somehow and he's like i'm gonna get us invited to a party at sir isaac so we can go bonkers oh my god squad so goals that happened to me and then aside from that we got the craftacular yes that is tomorrow the bus craftacular and school for creative living is happening this weekend december 8th and 9th at the brooklyn expo center in greenpoint what do you want to say about it uh i want to say that my favorite wizard devin person I just went to a ritual he did with Lori, our boss. She um, she came with me, and he was doing a ritual called The Podcast is the Ritual, and he's starting a wizard's podcast, and everybody there is in the spell of the future and the past because you're recording something in the present for people in the future, but when you listen to it, it will be the past. Mm-hmm. You see the journey see. that he takes you I, on there? I see. And so he was taking... It's like a snake eating its own tail. Yes. And so that was what the whole... pot And everybody that was in the room was making the spell for the ritual by being in the past, present, and future at the same time. Shazam. Yeah. It was a really great, wonderful party. There was a lot of CBD cocktails at the Craftacular. He's teaching two classes on erotic hypnosis, both on Saturday and Sunday at 530 He's talked to me about his erotic. He's hypnotized me before, non-erotically. It's really chill. You're aware of your environment. I know people think that when you're hypnotized, you're not in the area, but you're mm-hmm. aware. You're just chilled. So, like, if somebody walks in the room, you know they're in the room. Mm-hmm. You just don't give a fuck that they're in the room. Mm-hmm. In, like, a deep, deep state of not giving <laughs> a fuck. So that class is happening. And then um, Kristen Soleil former guest on this very podcast she is doing sex color magic and we would be remiss if we didn't mention that you and i will be hosting a live taping of this podcast the pop tarts podcast at the craftacular on saturday the 8th at 1 p.m and our guest is gonna be brace yourselves Janine fucking Garofalo. Yes. Know it. <laughs> yes. And aside from that, there's going to be like shopping and a bunch of other classes. Craftacular this year is madness. Mayhem. I'm very excited. Yeah. But if you like what we do, if you want to meet and greet uh, Janine and watch us interview her in a, an intimate setting for free, for zero dollars. Oh, just show up at the Brooklyn Expo Center on Saturday, December 8th. We start at 1 p.m. Just waltz on in <laughs> and you can be part of the magic. 
Yeah. That's what's up. All right. Yeah. What have you been watching? I'm so glad you asked what I've been watching. I barely watched this movie because it was so violent. I was covering my eyes for the violent parts. I and so I it. ended up not seeing most of the movie. That's how violent it was. Uh, my luscious research assistant pulled up Mother Krampus on Amazon Prime. It also goes by the name 12 Deaths of Christmas. I want to see it. So look for it either as Mother Krampus or 12 Deaths of Christmas if you're looking for it. This is a recent film. It came out in 2017. Mm-hmm. And it is possibly the most disgusting holiday movie ever made. I challenge you to find a more disgusting well, holiday Well, I really movie. liked Black Christmas. That's not the one the 80s were. I have seen Black Christmas. It's not like, I mean, it was 80s. They didn't do go fully. Slaughtered. When you're talking about blood spray, which I know Ooh, is I important love. to you, I've never seen a bloodier holiday movie. I'm into it. It's also, uh, you know, got a woman as the terrifying lead. Which makes it even Ooh, more up our alley than before. It's based on the myth of Frau Perchta, a witch that comes on the twelve days of Christmas, taking a child each night and putting them in her yes, sack. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I like it. It had, as I said, it had so much graphic violence and blood spray. I had to look away, but I want to tell you the grossest part that I did see because I've literally been thinking about it every single day since I watched it. (laughs) That's how gross it is. There is in this scene a woman and her young nephew are camping in the woods. They're having a nice little like toasty time out in the woods and all of a sudden out of nowhere this witch shows up and jumps on the auntie's back and like slams her to the ground. I think there's some stabbing so like there's some sort of preliminary like blood coming out of her mouth or whatever but then this bitch Listen to this. She takes a razor-sharp gingerbread man cookie cutter (laughs) out of her witch's cloak and cuts gingerbread men out of the flesh of this woman's back and cooks them over the open fire whilst the young child is watching in horror. I'm getting a very Hansel and Gretel vibe. Eats the flesh cookies that she cooked Made out of the skin of this lady's back who's screaming and dying. Very Hansel and Gretel. And then puts the nephew in the sack. Sounds great. I'm feeling nauseous just describing that to you now. I felt nauseous watching it. Just like, I'll be like walking down the street, listening to podcasts, doing whatever. And then I'll be like, ooh, flesh cookies. Damn, I don't have Amazon Prime. I'm going to have to figure out how to get Flesh cookies. <laughs> you have to come to my house and watch it. So, yeah, when I saw this movie, I was like, this is disgusting. They should have never been made. Like, this is for degenerates. Callie will love this movie. <laughs> yes, I want to see it. Mother right Krampus. I also saw a crazy Jeff Goldblum movie from 1990 called Mr. Frost, in which he plays a serial killer. He gets sent to a mental institution, and, like, all of a sudden, like, the doctors and orderlies and other patients start, like, acting super crazy and it's because of his insidious influence and then people are like hmm is he the devil I'm not sure but it is a weird quasi art film I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's good it's <laughs> very gold bloomy if you're in the cult of gold bloom he is it's shirtless for no reason multiple times oh, okay and it's also noteworthy that this is pre-social media And so to show in the early moments of the movie that this dude is not right, that he's insane in the membrane, they show him cooking and then taking a Polaroid of the food that he cooked Uh, and putting it on the wall and not eating the food to show how sick and wrong he is. And so, like, he definitely predated the food photography (laughs) uh, on social media movement by uh, a decade and a half or more with his uh, interpretation of a serial killer who takes pictures of his food and doesn't eat it. Um, And yeah, that my friend is what I've been watching. Well, this is another knock out of the park. One for the books. Thanks so much to our producer, Rachel Withers, the greatest producer of all. (laughs) And of course our pals, Lally Roman and Marv at 300 Entertainment, and to our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems. You can't find Callie on no, Twitter. No, 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 no. So don't even try. 
But you can email both of us. I'm at emilyrems at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And if you want to come hang out with us at the Bust Craftacular this weekend, bust.com slash craftacular. Yes. It's like spectacular, but with craft at the beginning. <laughs> And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Like, we don't want you to be out there just imagining flesh cookies getting cut out of someone's back when you could have our dulcet tones in your ear holes and in your mind instead. You deserve better than Mother Krampus. No, I want, I deserve Mother Krampus. All right, you deserve Mother Krampus too. But what I'm trying to say is if you want us to thrive and survive, it's so easy to make that happen. Just like us on Apple Podcasts and review us and rate us and it'll totally keep us going into 2019. Uh, it helps us get the word out, and we super duper appreciate it. Until next time, mwah! mwah.